Friends, indeed, this is all our hope and peace. It's not what the government will do for us. It's not how things go politically in our country. It's not how our bank account is going or doing. It's not how our relationships are going. Our, all our hope and peace is in what Jesus has accomplished for us through his shed blood on the cross. It's been a joy to partake of the Lord's Supper with, uh, with you this morning as a congregation. Next week, Lord willing, we will celebrate another um, ordinance of the church, the ordinance of baptism. Have you, ever, um, have you ever planned a party, an event that you are inviting people to? You get the house ready, you buy refreshments, you buy food, you make it all nice, and you are hoping people will come and show up. Now, if you are at Park Hills Baptist Church, people will show up. But have you been in places or situations where very few people show up? Actually, just one or two? And you might still do or hang out with the people who do show up, but at the end of the day, you feel disappointed. You made all these preparations. You, you prepared the house. You bought supplies. You're looking forward to a time of, of sweet fellowship, interaction, great party. And then nobody showed up. You felt that disappointment? Well, this morning, dear friends, we're going to look at a, a theme of God's salvation, and particularly at God's call to people to respond to his salvation. And just like we have celebrated the Lord's Supper earlier in our service, next week we will celebrate uh, the, the ordinance of baptism when we will see publicly uh, a few candidates who will profess their faith in Christ. And, and we'll do that not only next week, uh, we will also do it the week after. Uh, and we might, depending on how many are available, uh, finishing up their testimonies, we might have to do it again in a few weeks. God has blessed our congregation with seeing the fruit of the gospel, people responding to salvation. Well, this morning, I want us to look at the theme of responding to God's salvation. Would you open God's Word, the book of Isaiah, chapter 52? Isaiah, chapter 52. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 12. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, we encourage you to find a a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. They're black-looking, uh, black-cover-looking Bibles. You may find this passage on page number 613. Also, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would love for you to grab the Pew Bible, uh, take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it and read it. And if you have any questions about it, we'd love to talk to you. This morning, God's Word for us says the following thing. Awake! Awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus, says the Lord, you are sold for nothing. And you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt 
who sojourned there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken up for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in, th in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord, Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his arm, his holy arm, before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the proclamation of his word for our hearts. Father, in this word, you give us a number of imperatives, a number of commands to respond to the salvation that you have prepared for your people. Lord, would you make these commands sound clear in our hearts? Would you make your word bring strength to your people? Strength to be able to abide and to obey and to respond to your call. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that moves us to action, moves us to respond to your word, so that the name of Jesus, so that your name would be glorified and exalted. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. The text we just read is a part of a larger message in this book of Isaiah that tells the story of God comforting his people. From chapter 40 on, up to now, and even beyond this point, God has been bringing a, a major message to his people. A message that he is beginning to comfort his people. The wrath that he has brought is about to be over. And he has a message of comfort. And the passage we just read is part of this bigger section in this book of Isaiah that God is comforting his people. For the, for the last few chapters in Isaiah, God has been speaking uh, about this comfort and particularly by telling them that he is 
bringing them a salvation that will radically change them. God is comforting them by telling them that he's bringing a salvation that is radically going to change them. A salvation that will reach to the ends of the earth. A salvation that will never, never, ever be ending. As the message of God's comfort and salvation continues to unfold in our text, the emphasis today changes from what we saw last week in chapter 51. In chapter 52, the emphasis changes slightly. In our, in our text, the emphasis is not merely on God informing his people about his salvation. It's also calling them to respond to his salvation. God tells them that they don't have to work for this salvation. God promised them to bring this salvation to them. But now God calls them to begin living the new reality that God accomplishes for them. God calls them to begin living as a people who are no longer in slaves, in slavery, in bondage. Hence the title this morning is Respond, Respond to God's Salvation. But what does this response include? In this text, we will see three elements or three major parts to this response what this response to God's salvation includes. And here they are. If you like taking notes, I'm going to give you the heads up now, and then we're going to unpack them as we go. The first response is, wake up to God's new reality. Wake up to God's new reality. The second response, rejoice in God's new reality. Rejoice in God's new reality. And third, leave the old reality behind leave the old reality behind. Let's look at each of these elements of the response that God has for his people as he announced to them his salvation. First point, wake up to God's new reality. Notice how chapter 52 begins. Awake. Awake. Have you ever walked in your kid's room? Open the door. They're sound asleep. They are already 15 minutes late to school. Awake! Awake! Let's get ready. Let's get dressed up. Literally, friends, that's the tone of this verse. Awake! Awake! The new reality to which God awakens his people is the reality of his salvation. It is a salvation that leads to holiness. Let me say that again. It's a salvation that leads to holiness. Interestingly, God's salvation is a new reality that God's people need to wake up to. Let that reality sink in. Two times in these two chapters, in chapter 52 and then 51, that we covered last week, two times, God commands his people to wake up, to awake. We see the first of those commands in chapter 51, uh, 51, verse 17. God said to his people, wake up or wake yourself. Awake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. Do you, do you feel like God is just like that parent who wakes up, goes into the, his children's room and says, wake up. In chapter 51, the wake up call was to wake up from drunkenness. Who? 
don't worry, it's not the drunkenness of wine. Instead, it's worse. It's a drunkenness that people had because they drank the cup of the wrath of God. The wrath of God against their sin. God gave them the cup of his wrath because of their ongoing rebellion and disobedience. And they were drunk with that cup of the wrath of God. But now, God awoke them to a new reality that he's planning to remove the cup of his wrath from them. That's the first wake-up call that we saw in chapter 51. In chapter 52, we see the second wake-up call. This time, Israel is called to wake up from another pitiful circumstance. Not from drunkenness, as in chapter 51, but from the dust. Earlier in Isaiah, God described that Babylon as being brought down to dust. It was a place of humiliation. The dust is a place of shame, the place of hopelessness. And that was a place where God's people found themselves in these chapters of Isaiah. Some of us this morning may find ourselves in such a place. And it may encourage us to hear that God can issue His people the command to wake up, even from the place of dust. If you feel like you are in the dust, don't think that God has forgotten you. Even there, even from there, God can address His people and call them up and say, wake up, shake off the dust. In these verses, Israel is described not only as being in the dust, but also being captive. Look at the end of verse 2, where God addresses his people by the phrase, O captive daughter of Zion. Did you hear that phrase? O captive daughter of Zion. In other words, when God addresses his people in this passage, he is addressing them as being in bondage. Right above this phrase, we realize that they have bonds on their necks. Whether it's chains of metal or ropes, we don't know. But it's not a pretty picture. They got into this condition because of the rebellion against the Lord. Friends, let this be a reminder. Sin always brings us to the condition of bondage. Always. But it is to them in this condition that God speaks. To them. God utters this command, awake, awake. And as God awakens them, notice what he asks them to do. Awake, awake, put on, dress up. Put on what? Put on strength. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the city of holiness. The, the picture of putting on strength and putting on beautiful garments it's the exact opposite of their current condition. They are in the dust. But God wants them to put on a new set of clothing, beautiful garments. Friends, as, uh, as spring sets in Austin, many of you may have already begun doing some significant yard work. Or if you haven't done so yet, you will or you should. 
Perhaps your wife is nudging you right now. Imagine that you are working in the yard one Saturday morning. You uh, clean up the, the, the bushes. You start getting your hands dirty into those flower beds, getting sweaty, getting dirt on your hands, getting dirt in, even under your fingernails. You're dressed in clothes that are appropriate for yard work. And then after some long hours of work in the yard, your wife comes and says, it's time to go, time to get ready. You go in, inside the house, you take a shower, and change into elegant clothes. You change into those clothes, into some elegant clothes, to go back to the yard work? Probably not. You change into elegant clothes because you probably have an appointment to go to, an event. And the clothes are really elegant because perhaps it's a, it's a wedding party that you're going to. Perhaps you're even in the wedding. You dress beautifully, and your dressing beautifully is a sign that says, I'm about to do something very different than digging up flower beds and getting dirty with dirt under my fingernails. But that's the beautiful tone that we get in these two verses of Isaiah 52. Only that there's a slight difference. And actually the difference is quite big. The contrast is not between changing from yard work clothing into beautiful garments. The change is between having chains on you, being or being dressed as a prisoner and changing those prisoner clothes for beautiful garments. That's the contrast. The new reality that God awakens His people for shows the, the change of what is to happen to them. A change of status. A change of experience from a prisoner to a person invited to a great party. God's salvation, dear friends, challenges God's people to wake up and realize that a significant change God is affecting for them. And He is calling them to begin living in a new reality. And this new reality is not just a great event. It's not just a great party. It's a new reality of holiness. We find more about the, the beautiful garments and what they represent in, in verse 1. They are the garments of a holy city. Look again at verse 1. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. This tells us that the beautiful garments are not about the clothing show, are not a clothing competition. Who looks more nice, more beautiful? They're not even about actual clothing. They are an imagery of a holy city. Then at the end of verse 1, God gives a great picture. He says, For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. The promises that God gives to His people is that His people, His city, their dwelling will be holy again, pure, with no unclean person among them. This means that the new reality to which God awakens His people is a reality of holiness. 
What a contrast this promised reality is from their current experience. The contrast is significant. Their physical and spiritual circumstances are of a captive daughter. That's how God calls Jerusalem and Zion in verse 2. O captive daughter. But God awakens them to the reality and calls them, O holy city. Some of us, dear friends, may have become drowsy in our spiritual lives. So much so that we are asleep. And God wants, us to, wants to say to us as well, wake up. I'm changing you. You are no longer enslaved. You can take off your chains. You can put on beautiful clothes. I'm calling you to be holy. And I want you to start living that way as you wake up. I wonder, my dear friends, what is going on in your life that God might want to awaken you from and awaken you to. Is there an area in your life where there's still bonds on your neck that you need to take off? Awake. Put on strength. Put on the clothes of the new reality. Take off the bonds. Friends, God's salvation is not merely what happens to us when we die. God's salvation is about what happens to us as we live our daily lives. And God calls us to awake to a new reality. The, the, the call to awake in these verses is a call to get ready, to prepare. Why? What's going on in the day that, that God's people have to awake to? If we keep reading this passage, we find out that God is returning to Zion. And God wants to find His people clothed in strength, in holiness, and expecting His return. Some, however, may not want to change their garments. Some may not want to get ready. They like being in the outfit of their bondage. Imagine, imagine, dear friends, a prisoner. A prisoner who for years in prison has been wearing his prison garments. The day of his liberation comes. He's freed from prison. He now can go wherever he wants. He can resume his life, a normal life. And even though he has been freed, he begins wearing the same old prison clothes. Wherever he goes, whoever he meets up with, he keeps wearing the same prison garments. In the real world, nobody does that. This is just a made-up story I made for you for an illustration. But spiritually, I'm afraid this reality is real. Spiritually, I'm afraid there's people who still want to hold on to their prison garments. They still want to live this life of freedom that God has given them as if they're still enchained, as if they still have the bonds on. Oh, friends, God says, awake, my people. I have freed you. Put on new garments. Put off the bonds. Awake to the, God, to the new reality of holiness. The second point God gives them, the second command God gives them, 
is rejoice in God's new reality. Rejoice in God's new reality. We see this command in verses 3 to 10. It's, it's a longer part of our passage. And God is giving here more details about the new reality they will experience. It's the reality of their redemption. We don't get all the details here of how God will carry out his redemption. For all the way to this moment, God has been holding off, telling us the details of how God will redeem his people. We are on the brink of finding out the details of how exactly God will redeem his people. How exactly can God say, I'm removing the cup of wrath from your hand? How can God say that? Well, we're so close to getting the details. It's, it's in the second half of this chapter and in the next chapter. But it's in the half we have not read. We're going to keep that until next Sunday. We'll come back next Sunday. But today, we get to hear some teasers, some appetizers about how God is working out this redemption. And here's a few things God says about his redemption so God's people can rejoice in it. Why can, God re- why can God's people rejoice in the new reality? You see, dear friends, this passage not only tells us that God's people ought to respond with joy, but this passage tells us, unpacks for us, why the response of joy is the natural response to God's salvation. God is gracious here to capture our imagination and our affections toward Him. And the description of God's salvation in this passage, does exactly that. It tries to capture our imagination and our affections. Here's how he does it. When God explains to them his redemption, he tells them a little bit about how he's going to do it and why he's going to do it and what the effects are of his redemption. In verses 3 to 5, God mentions three times that his people have been sold into bondage for nothing. Did you pick up on the phrase three times? God says, my people have been sold into slavery for nothing, for no price. And then God says that he will save them without money, without paying anyone to get his people back. God does not owe anyone anything in order to ransom and to redeem his people. this This is part of the description that God gives us about his redemption, that he will rescue, he will redeem people without money because they were sold into bondage without money. God says that he will rescue them freely. Then God says that his redemption will restore the honor due to God's name. Notice what is the problem that God identifies in this passage. Not only were were his people sold for nothing, and sold into bondage, but that through their existence as a people in bondage, God's name was continually being despised. Verse 5, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. This means that the reason why God redeems his people is to restore the honor due to his name. Friends, God's salvation is not ultimately about us. God's salvation is not ultimately about us, but about the glory of His name. 
when he saves his people, his name will no longer be despised. Friends, God wants to save us to declare the glory of his name. And then another detail we get about this redemption is that the redemption will restore people's ability to recognize God's word. The redemption will restore people's ability to recognize God's word. We, we see that in verse 6. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. One of the effects that redemption will accomplish in our lives, dear friends, is attentiveness to God's word. It's confidence that it is God who speaks here. This is not just a word of man. This is not just a word of some people who, who wrote the Bible. This is the word of God who inspired his people to speak his word so that we may understand what the Creator has to say to us. You say, how do I get that confidence? By being saved. Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. One of the effects of redemption is that we are being restored in our ability to recognize God's Word, the God who speaks. If verses 3 to 6 told us of the reasons why God is redeeming His people and, and the effects of His redemption, in verses 7 through 10, we get a picture in slow motion of how this news of God's redemption will come to His people and how His people should respond. The news of this redemption uses an imagery from military combat. The, the news of this redemption or the, the communication of this news uses the imagery from military combat. In ancient times when there were no phones, no radio devices, the only way people in the city would hear the outcome from the battlefield is if someone sent a traveler, a person back to the city to deliver the news of what the battle was like and what the outcome of the battle was. Now, this was typically, oftentimes, was a, was a lone runner. The man who would run away from the battlefield to communicate to the city, hey, we have won. Our people have won the battle. This is what we get in this picture. It says in verse 7, the feet how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. The feet of this lone runner are described as beautiful. This is not a description about his feet, but rather about how delightful it is to see the lone runner coming from the battlefield and bringing great news. Seeing his feet is delightful because he is announcing the victorious outcome of a battle. Notice what is the good news that he is declaring in verse 7? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Do you see what, what the news of this lone runner 
who runs from the battlefield and communicates the news, do you see what he's telling the people in the city? It's news about peace. It is news of happiness. It is news about salvation. But notice what the salvation is about. It communicates that the God of Israel reigns. In other words, the good news of salvation is news of peace, not political peace, but peace with God. Peace against the enemies of God. Peace, it is news that God invites us to change our resentment against God into happiness for God's salvation. Remember, in chapter 49, Zion has responded with resentment against God. No matter how much God announced that he's redeeming his people, God said, the people of Zion said, God has forsaken me. God has forgotten me. And now this lone runner communicates a, a, a news of happiness, a news of salvation. And notice that this news of salvation is salvation because of what is being said in the last description. The last description of this news is that God reigns. Friends, to declare the message of God's salvation is to declare the message that God reigns. That he is a victorious king. Now, we are not used to hear or to think about God's salvation as a message of God's reign. But it is. There are some people who don't mind having God as Savior, but not having him as king. Friends, that's not possible. To experience God's salvation is to experience God's reign as this messenger announces. In the aftermath of the battle, to say that God reigns means that he has defeated the enemy that has held God's people captive. You cannot have God as a savior without having God as a king. The news of God's salvation is news of his kingship. One of my favorite tracts, uh, evangelistic tracts, uh, that is out there is a tract called Two Ways to Live. We have it here in the, in the foyer. We'd love for you to take it. One of the reasons why I love this tract is because it presents God's salvation through this, the lens of God's kingship. Friends, to come back to God, to, denounce, to, to declare the news of salvation, is to reclaim, to reclaim, to announce, to acknowledge, to embrace the news that God reigns and he battles against the enemies that hold us captive the enemy of sin the enemy of darkness the enemy of death the enemy of our own rebellion the enemy of our own hearts that continually rebel against God God wins the Apostle Paul used a picture of a beautiful feat of the man who brings us good news he uses this picture when he describes the communication of the gospel. In the book of Romans, at one point, Paul says, how, pe how will people come to faith in God? And the answer he gives is, by hearing the word. But how will they hear if they can't, if no one tells them? And how will someone tell them if no one is being sent? And then Paul literally quotes in Romans 10, 14 and 15, he says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in, whom, on who, in, in him of whom they have not heard? 
And how are they to hear without one preaching? And how are they to preach un unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul is using this imagery from Isaiah 52 to say to people that the, the feet of the lone runner are the feet of those who declare that God reigns, that He reigns to bring salvation. Oh, dear friends, whenever we tell one another or others of God's salvation, it is a beautiful message. It is a delightful message. Perhaps if you're on the receiving side of, of hearing that message, perhaps for years you have ignored this news of God reigning. Perhaps you've heard it many times, but you've never seen the delight and the beauty of announcing, of hearing that message. Friends, recognize this. God has conquered the enemy that holds us rebellious. And if we continue to hold on to a defeated enemy, one day God will crush us along with a defeated enemy that he has already conquered. The news of God's salvation is a news that calls people to change allegiances from the kingdom of darkness, from the kingdom of, the, of a defeated enemy, to the kingdom of a victorious king. And not only is this news coming to tell us how beautiful and delightful it is to hear that God has won the victory, but if we keep going, we see that this news is reaching the, the watchmen of the city. They are the first ones who see the, the feet of the lone runner. They rejoice. But notice what they see. They not only hear the news that the victorious king has conquered, they also see the return of the Lord to Zion. Well, friends, the news of the gospel is not merely that God saves. It's not merely that God has conquered. It's also the news that he is coming back. He is coming back to be with his people. The Lord won the battle. But he's not content merely to give his people victory. No, he's coming to be with his people. In the scene, the, the return of the Lord to Zion, there's no army behind him. When he comes back, all that the watchmen see is the return of the Lord alone. You know why? Because he fought the battle alone. He didn't need an army for this battle. He came, to, he came to his people and said, I am bringing victory to you. I'm not calling you to battle against your, the enemy to win the victory against him. I have won it for you. I'm coming to declare this news to you. And I'm coming to be with you. And in verse 10, it says that all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. In verse 9, God says, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. Friends, God is calling his people as they are watching this, this battle and the news of this battle reaching them, as they see the feet of the lone runner, as the watchmen on the, on the, on the, on the walls rejoice, as, a, as the people in the city get the news, they are encouraged rejoice in the new reality 
that God is bringing them. Friends, there's a last part about this message that we often forget. And here it is. The third point. It's not only about awaking to the new reality. It's not only about rejoicing in the new reality. Here's a third one. Leave the old reality behind. Look at verses 11 and 12. They are a set of six commands, a list of six commands that begin with the words, with the imperatives, twice. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. In other words, once the news of God's salvation has been proclaimed, the people of God can no longer stay where they have been. God does not save his people to leave them where they are. God does not save his people to leave them how they have been before. The salvation God obtains for us calls us to leave the place of our bondage. You can't stay where you have been before God saved you. So verses 11 and 12 are a call to holiness, to purity. God says, as they will depart, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. The Bible calls this sanctification. The call to holiness. The call to holiness is not the condition of our salvation, but it is the aftermath of our salvation. It's the conclusion. It's the implication of our salvation. God saves us so he can call us to holiness. You know, dear friends, that this verse, these verses are quoted by the apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians, where Paul draw, draws out the practical applications um, and uses this picture from Isaiah 52, 11 and 12, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 4, 14 through 18, here's what the Apostle Paul said to the people in Corinth. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? And what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Do you hear that? That's a quotation from Isaiah 52, 11. In this text, God commands Christians not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that has a lot of applications. Not only does that include a marriage situation, but it's not limited merely to a marriage situation. Any particular bondage in which we are in bondage with a non-believer so that we can't obey God but have to obey what an unbeliever says, God says, break away the bondage. Break away. That is a bondage you need to break away. Don't bond yourself in situations where you can't obey God because you've made commitments with unbelievers that you now have to choose between God or these commitments. 
break the way, the commitment, so you can follow God. Leaving, says one commentator, leaving was to be the reality that controlled all that they said and, and did. The call to depart resembles here the departure from Egypt. The salvation that God is bringing his people resembles the exodus that God did in, in, in the book of Exodus to his people. But there are two big contrasts. When they left Egypt, God told them to take up things from Egypt, to grab everything they could from Egypt. In this new exodus of God's salvation, God says to touch nothing unclean and to take nothing from the place of their bondage. The flight from Egypt had to be very quick because Pharaoh was going to change his mind and pursue the Israelites again. But the new exodus will not be so. God says, you will not have to go quickly. You will not go in haste because the new exodus, the Lord has destroyed the enemy. They're walking away from, e from, the, from their place of bondage, not as fugitives. They're walking away from the place of bondage as conquerors. Oh, dear friends, the journey out of their place of bondage will be certain and without a deadline. More so, their journey will have God's leading ahead of them and God's protection behind them. Friends, God not only calls us to leave the place of our bondage, but in this journey, he says, don't take anything from Babylon with you. Don't take anything with you. I'm the one who leads you. I'm the one who protects you on the back. And I'm with you. Leave. Depart. Friends, the Christian life, Christian life is a life of departing from the place of our bondage. It's not just a one-time experience. It is a one-time experience, but not just that. It is also a daily experience of departing and leaving. And as the commentator said, this leaving was to be a reality that controlled all that people said and did and even think. Friends, this morning, as, as we have been told of God's salvation, the emphasis of this passage has been on responding to God's salvation. I wonder how is it that you respond to the salvation? As we're going to depart from this place, as we're going to pray in a second, as we're going to reflect on what God has spoken to us, I wonder how will you leave this place? Will you leave with this call to awake, to examine your life and say, what is it that I need still to, to break off? Will you leave with this call to rejoice in what God has brought to his people? Will you leave with a fresh commitment to take the command of depart seriously? What would it look like for you and I to have the attitude, the mindset of people who are departing, of people who are living in a lifestyle, in a mindset that we are departing from the place of bondage? One of the reasons why we are a church, one of the responsibilities that we have as, as a church together is to encourage one another to be living lives that awake, that rejoice, and that depart. May God help us to do so and to be so. Would you pray with me? Father, you indeed are God who has worked a great salvation for your people. Father, we praise you that you do not leave your people to stay and to remain in the place of their bondage. 
Father, we thank you that you have worked a great salvation apart from any works that we have done in and of ourselves. And now that you have accomplished the salvation for us, you call your people to live in the new reality of holiness, a new, re- new reality of freedom from sin and darkness. Father, would you help us? Would you assist your people? Would you give us the strength we need so that we may hope, clothe ourselves with your strength and with the beautiful garments of your holiness and expect and look forward to the return of the King to your people. In the name of Christ we pray.